0: Hey guys, welcome back to Seeking Asylum, conversations about immigration with Katie Prez. I'm Katie and on this week's podcast, we're going to be talking about Black transgender asylum in the United States. So a few weeks ago, I came across the story of a Jamaican trans woman, Jennifer Codner, AKA Siza Siza, who was imprisoned in immigration detention centers for nearly a decade. That's right, you're hearing that correctly nearly 10 years. And according to Transgender Law Center, where Scizzy's story is posted, if you want to check it out, she sought asylum here in the US after experiencing violence and persecution back home in Jamaica. So for 3,599 days following her arrival to the States, Siza Siza would like endure lengthened detention and harsher experiences within those detention centers as a result of both her race and gender orientation. So what I want to do for today is really break down some of the structural injustices that put Black transgender asylees at higher risk for asylum denial and abuse within detention centers. But before we can even jump into like the different ways that race and gender orientation complicate the asylum experience, um, I wanna explain what it means to be a person seeking asylum and what steps that person might take, you know, like under the law to be granted asylum in the United States. So according to the nonprofit, American Immigration Council, quote, Asylum is a protection granted to foreign nationals already in the United States, or arriving at the border who meet the international definition of a refugee, end quote. And under the Refugee Act of 1980 of the US immigration law, a refugee is someone who is unable or unwilling to return to his or her home country and can't really obtain protection in that country due to like, either past persecution or a well-founded fear of being persecuted in the future, basically on account of either race, religion, nationality, membership to a particular social group, or political opinion. And under these laws and like additional international legislation that we're really not going to get into here today, The United States is legally obligated to provide any person who qualifies as a refugee with protection. So as of right now, there are two paths um, that someone can take to obtain a refugee status under the Refugee Act, either from abroad as a resettled refugee or in the United States as an asylum seeker. And now a person can apply for asylum under one of two processes an affirmative process or a defensive process. And I'm gonna break these down for you in in just a second here. So first I wanna go over what the defensive process is. And this process is for people who are in removal proceedings, which are essentially like the steps that are carried out in immigration court to determine someone's removability under US immigration law. So essentially like whether or not under the law, they're allowed to be um, removed from the United States. So someone who is undergoing these proceedings can basically apply for asylum as a defense against their removal from the U.S. by filing the application with an immigration judge at the Executive Office for Immigration Review in the Department of Justice. And what's interesting to note here, and this will become important a bit later in our conversation, But what's interesting here is that the Executive Office for Immigration Review does not actually provide appointed counsel for individuals in immigration court, even if they're unable to basically secure an attorney on their own. So on the other hand, if a person is not in removal proceedings, they can affirmatively apply for asylum through U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, which is also called USCIS, and is essentially a division of the Department of Homeland Security. If a USCIS asylum officer does not grant the asylum application and the applicant does not have a lawful immigration status, they'll be referred to immigration court for removal proceedings where they can essentially renew the request for asylum through the defensive process that we just talked about and appear before an immigration judge. But this process is basically can be complicated by a bunch of different things, and applicants can really be excluded from asylum based on certain factors. So for instance, applicants who are found to pose a danger to the United States, are barred from asylum. And additionally, individuals who fail to apply for asylum within a year of entering the U.S. are barred as well. And what's really unfortunate is that some people might not ever even know that the deadline exists. And even if they do, there are still numerous systemic barriers that can make it impossible to file their application within the year long window. But US law allows asylum seekers who are arriving in the United States to remain here while their claim for protection is pending, but under Title 8, chapter 1226 of the US code, The government has the right to detain these individuals rather than release them to the community. And actually, though, research shows that detention exacerbates the challenges that asylum seekers already face and can negatively impact a person's asylum application. So next, I really want to take a look at the ways in which the effects of detention really disproportionately affect Black asylees. So, I want to use Sciza story as a jumping off point here because before she was released from detention in October of 2020, she, like so many other Black and transgender asylees, was criminalized and thrown into the prison to deportation pipeline. So for those of you who don't know, the prison to deportation pipeline is a system that basically works to funnel immigrants from the criminal court system into ICE custody and then to the immigration court system where they'll ultimately be sent back to their nations of birth. But anyway, when I read about SZA, SZA story in the hashtag free SZA SZA campaign description, it made me wonder whether what I already know about racial disparities in the criminalization of black citizens of the United States, which is essentially that they're more likely than non-black citizens to have criminal convictions. So whether this trend can be extended to immigrants as well. And what I found is that it can be. So according to a 2016 report by the NYU Immigrant Rights Clinic and the Black Alliance for Just Immigration, Black immigrants represent about 7% of non of the non-citizen population, which is crazy because they make up 20% of immigrants facing deportation on criminal grounds. So essentially, despite racial disparities in criminal enforcement, the federal government prioritizes the deportation and detention of individuals with criminal records. So... To me, this kind of sounds like policing racial capitalism, like targeting a group that you know to be disproportionately Black and Latinx and sending them into a system that is also rigged for their defeat. I think that historian of race, empire and culture, Paul Singh would argue that this perpetuates both white hoarding of power and the culturally constructed identity of Black people being criminals. So let's break this down even further. Once a refugee is in detention, no matter how they got there, they'll have to appear in immigration court where they'll likely either apply for asylum or argue against their deportation. And because deportation is classified as a civil rather than a criminal sanction, immigrants facing removal aren't actually afforded the constitutional protections under the Sixth Amendment that are provided to criminal defendants. Whereas in the criminal justice system, all defendants facing like even a single day in jail are provided an attorney if they can't afford one, immigrants facing deportation generally don't have that opportunity. It's also like notoriously harder to find representation from within a detention center. So a lot of immigrants often have no other choice but to represent themselves in court and are left to like navigate like a notoriously complex and bureaucratic system on their own. A 2016 report by the American Immigration Council found that only 14% of detained immigrants acquire legal counsel, compared to two-thirds of non-detained immigrants. So really a staggering difference. And because Black immigrants and asylees are disproportionately detained on criminal grounds, they're basically, as a consequence, disproportionately at risk of going to immigration court without representation. And the same report that I was just talking about actually also found that represented immigrants were nearly 11 times more likely to apply for relief, like asylum from deportation, just because their their attorneys knew about such systems of like relief. And so Data from Syracuse University actually reinforces this finding and shows that your odds of being granted asylum are five times better if you have an attorney. So even though there is no evidence that black asylees commit crime at higher rates than other asylees, they are disproportionately um, systemically barred from asylum on criminal grounds. To make matters even worse, even in the case that an asylee and their appointed judge speak the same language. There's still a nearly insurmountable language and cultural barrier between the two. An attorney can break down the legal language barrier, but there really isn't much in place in our current system to account for like divergent cultural experience. And let me explain what I mean by this. A huge deciding factor in the cases for asylum are the judges themselves. And there's a stark lack of female judges, judges of color, and judges self-identifying as LGBTQ across the entire federal judiciary. And I think this is worth noting because for litigants, diversity on the federal bench offers real benefits like fairer judicial decisions that are actually influenced by invaluable diverse perspectives that like really lack in a majority cis white male bench. And that it is. Across all Article Three U.S. District Courts and the U.S. Court of Appeals, Black people make up only 10% of sitting judges, while Black women make up only 3% of sitting judges, according to a 2019 report by the Center for American Progress. So this is pretty crucial because when deciding cases that affect historically underrepresented groups, federal judges who don't belong to such groups may have difficulty recognizing and contextualizing unique concerns or things like hardships experienced by those whose freedoms or rights are being infringed upon, which really can result in miscarriages of justice. All right, so we've spent some time here considering the ways that that race can impact someone's chances at getting asylum in the U.S. And up next, we're going to be hearing from a good friend of mine who will shed some light on the ways that gender identity can complicate this process even further. Okay, I want to I want to return again to the story of Siza At this point, we really should be able to um, to understand the role race played. In, in her criminalization and extended detention, but I now wanna consider the role gender orientation plays in seeking asylum basically to, to kind of create a more comprehensive understanding of like why SZA SZA spent 10 years in detention and why black transgender people in general are disproportionately barred from asylum. So I reached out to one of my good friends, Sophia Yepes who is a sociology major writing her thesis on transgender immigration and hopefully she can give us a little insight into transgender immigration policy. Sophia, thank you so much for being on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So I just want to start off this conversation with um, a little vocab lesson and was hoping you could share with the listeners a working definition of what it means to identify as transgender.
1: Yeah, of course. So a person who's transgender is essentially someone whose birth gender, the gender that they were identified with when they were born, doesn't conform to their lived or perceived gender, which is the gender that they're most comfortable with expressing. And
0: am I correct in saying that some transgender people decide to, or or rather wish to, permanently change their bodily characteristics um, to conform to their preferred gender, but that isn't necessarily like a constituent element of identifying as transgender.
1: Yeah, that's right. A lot of transgender people actually decide not to make those physical changes.
0: So roughly what
1: percentage of immigration population identifies as trans? I actually can't answer that question. And even ICE can't answer that question. But I would guess that there are fewer than 50 self-identifying transgender people in detention of what maybe... 40,000 detainees so yeah that's like a pretty small percentage but and I really want to stress this this group should not be overlooked when we talk about migrant justice because they're among the most oppressed people within our system
0: I'm, I'm actually so glad that you said that because I really want people out there to understand how various forms of oppression intersect to create like a really nuanced system of disadvantage um, and this actually is a really good segue into my next question trans asylees experience probably the most extreme forms of harassment in detention centers. Um, is that fair to say? Yes. Okay, so why is this behavior still acceptable? I mean, it's 2021. How is it that our system allows for like such glaring human rights violations?
1: I mean, up until about five or six years ago, there really wasn't much protection for trans asylees under the law. So even the limited protection out there is relatively new. But under the Obama administration, there was some pretty major shifts in immigration policy to address abuse and detention, which included policies aimed at preventing sexual assault and limiting the use of solitary confinement.
0: That's interesting that you say that because I remember one of the most horrifying parts of a story, like literally nearly every other transgender asylee story that I've read thus far, was the way that she was treated in the detention centers. And I remember actually reading a story about another transgender woman who was literally placed in solitary confinement for I think it was like 18 months before she was actually denied asylum and then kicked out of the US.
1: What's actually kind of interesting is that trans people are placed in solitary confinement to protect them from mistreatment and detention.
0: Wait, 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 wait. Let me stop you right there. That seems kind of contradictory to me because solitary confinement, which, may I remind you, is literally a form of punishment within jails, seems like it'd cause a lot of psychological distress. I mean, people are social beings and to deprive someone of that is pretty cruel.
1: Yeah, no, you're so right. And the thing is, until Obama's 2015 guidelines, transgender women were mostly housed with men, which as I'm sure you can guess, led to disproportionately high rates of sexual assault both by guards and detainees. So what did Obama's guidelines specifically say about all of this then? Basically the guidelines instructed immigration officials to make individualized housing assessments, which would lead to like one to three different outcomes for transgender people. So like either they would be housed in men's or women's facilities in segregate units that exclusively house transgender women, or in extreme cases in solitary confinement. They also have things like guard sensitivity trainings, better access to gender-affirming medical care, specialized intake procedures. But wait,
0: let me guess, those guidelines haven't really changed the narrative for most transgender asylees.
1: Yup, Katie, you got it. And there's a pretty obvious pattern forming here. And you're not wrong. Basically, despite these well-intended guidelines, our system still lacks an independent oversight mechanism to ensure that they're carried out. And the majority of people that ICE detains are actually held in county jails privately operated prisons, and other contracted facilities that for the most part operate with limited independent oversight and inadequate implementation of federal detention standards. And I'm basically reciting my thesis right now.
0: Wow, so we're really failing our transgender population.
1: Yup, and the craziest part to me is that the guidelines still allow for the use of solitary confinement solely on the basis of an individual's gender identity. Even as a last result, this seems unacceptable. And like we said before, and I'll say it again, solitary confinement is a form of human rights abuse.
0: Never forget. Yeah, it is in no way a legitimate way of protecting detainees from other kinds of abuse. This actually reminds me of something I learned in in a class that I took on critical race theory called de facto discrimination. What's that? It's basically the idea that inequality is a result of like fortuitous actions by the state as opposed to, you know, like, purposeful discrimination. And I think that's pretty much what seems like is happening here. Like, like we said before, I think these guidelines were, were put in place wholeheartedly with an intention to, you know, like, reduce discrimination, particularly based on gender identification. But because of oversight, which could be a result of being uninformed or whatever, um, when they are writing the guidelines, that these policies actually allow for the t- continued discrimination of transgender people.
1: Mm, that's actually really interesting. And yeah, that sounds like that's very well what could be going on here.
0: Okay, so we're running out of time here, but I do want to bring up one last point. Transgender women face higher levels of poverty, of violence, of discrimination, which does include targeted police profiling, something that is widely known to disproportionately place them into the criminal justice system. But what I want to point out here is that even though there isn't much statistical research about how these things particularly affect transgender asylees, we can make a pretty educated guess on how these forms of discrimination might affect their chances at being granted asylum in the United States, right? Like, I mean, if I had to take a wild guess, I'd say that these factors affect transgender asylees in a way that's kind of similar to the way they affect black asylees, um, as we've discussed before. I mean, I believe the percent is, yep, 0.9%. People who identify as LGBTQ make up 0.9% of all sitting judges on the U.S. Court of Appeals and the U.S. District Courts. I think that statistic speaks for itself.
1: Wow, yeah, no, I'd say those are pretty fair conclusions based on the history of oppression in the US. And I know that we're short on time, but I just want to say that I think the US government has a really long way to go in terms of equality in immigration court. But there are a few tangible things that we can push the government to enforce. So first of all, I think it is well within our reach to call on the government to abolish solitary confinement and male detention centers as housing options for transgender people and transgender women respectively. And I also think that we can push our government to take immediate steps to investigate and bring an end to abusive practices within detention centers. And we can pressure them to ensure that transgender people have complete access to medical and mental health care services
0: all right unfortunately that's all the time we have for today but thank you so much Sophia, for taking the time to talk to me and i think that this conversation has been really
1: productive yeah thanks for having me i really enjoyed this conversation
0: if you want to learn more about this topic you can check out some of the organizations that actually inspired today's podcast including the movement advancement project the national center for transgender equality human rights watch the American Immigration Council, and the Transgender Law Center. I'd also recommend checking out books like Sarah McKinnon's Gendered Asylum, Race and Violence in U.S. Law and Politics, or movies such as Don McBurdy's Chasing Freedom. As always, I encourage you to have conversations like these in your own time with friends and family, and I'll catch you guys on the next episode of Seeking Asylum, Conversations About Immigration with Katie Perez.